What the hell is wrong with you people? You do yourself a disservice stating with definitive certainty that 23-year-old players can't break out. Why would you say that? And say it with such conviction. How can anyone have conviction that a 23-year-old player can't break out? Why the lack of patience? Why? Kenny Galladay's 23 years old, and he's a rookie. Cooper Cup's 23 years old, and he's a rookie. 23 is the most common year for wide receivers to break out. So why does... Devin Funchess received no benefit of the doubt from the fantasy football community. We had this buzzard right in. Devin Funchess is not happening. He had two catches for 21 yards. Big Benji gonna be the guy. Exclamation point. Yes. Yes. You know what's going to happen this year. Thank you. This is what's going to happen in 2017. We don't know. It's one thing we don't do on the show is state what will happen in 2017 with definitive certainty. You will notice we never do that. Because who could do that? I've seen Tim Hightower come out of retirement after being out of the league for three years and win fantasy football championships. That happened two years ago. At this point, I feel like I've seen it all. Last year, Adam Thielen broke out at age 26. He was drafted by 0.00 fantasy gamers heading into last season. And he ended up being the most efficient wide receiver in the NFL. And the only wide receiver in years to finish top 10 in production premium, target premium, yards per target, catch rate, and contested catch rate. Adam Thielen, who was not a starter last year and drafted by zero teams. In fact, very few Dynasty League teams, even the deepest Dynasty League rosters, were stashing Adam Thielen. So we've seen it all at this point, from Adam Thielen to Tim Hightower. You cannot just dismiss a player absolutely. It's irrational to do it. It's also simply odd. It's odd to dismiss the 23-year-old who is starting in two receiver sets, led all wide receivers in snaps with the first team in week three of the preseason and looking back to his college career posted a 41.4% 82nd percentile college dominator that's Devin Funchess he also broke out at age 19.3 83rd percentile and features a 107.9 87th percentile height adjusted speed score these are the things we like about Kenny Galladay, right? What are the three big check marks that Kenny Galladay possesses on his side of the ledger? The tout side of the Kenny Galladay ledger. It's 80th percentile college dominator. It's 80th percentile breakout age. It's 80th percentile plus height adjusted speed score. That's why we loved Kenny Galladay coming into this season. And it's why we think Devin Funchess is a sleeper. One of the top sleepers in the draft and not someone you should be dismissing. When you definitively say there's no possible way that Devin Funches can break out when he's scheduled to start, it's quintessential sports ignorance. Ignorance and arrogance. Arrogant ignorance. Ignorant arrogance. But go ahead, go ahead. Just cross Devin Funches off your list in Dynasty and make a bold, baseless claim on social media that he can't possibly be fantasy relevant. Why? Because... Because I said so. Because that's ultimately what it boils down to. There's no evidence to suggest that Devin Funchess can't break out this season. Zero! What's wrong with you people? You're just assholes. You want these players to fail. I don't know why. So many of you want so many players to fail. I want a single player to fail. Cooper Cup. That's it. 
from Tavon Austin to Kevin White, Laquan Treadwell, Zay Jones. I want to see these players succeed. They are playing blood sport. I respect them, and I want them to have successful careers, with the exception of Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup can just go away. Get away from me. Scoring touchdowns on broken coverage in preseason. People think that's impressive. Joke. Good luck competing with Sammy Watkins for targets this season. Coop. Think about Zay Jones. I'm not sure Zay Jones is better than Andre Holmes. Are you? How could you be? We haven't seen Zay Jones play a snap at the NFL level. And when we watched Zay Jones play in college, he couldn't come out as a sophomore. He couldn't come out as a junior because... The production wasn't there. We had to wait until his senior season for him to post a college dominator above the 50th percentile. And even then, it was only 37.1%, 72nd percentile, with a 11.1 yards per reception, 7th percentile. So he broke out late, wasn't exceptionally dominant when you look at his production in the context of the ECU air raid offense. ECU as a whole was putting up video game numbers, as was Zay Jones, but Zay Jones wasn't scoring any touchdowns, even though he commanded a significant red zone target share, as Matthew Friedman explained on last week's podcast. And on that podcast, Matthew Friedman also identified Andre Holmes as a player for which he qualifies for truther status. That Andre Holmes is the ultimate sleeper in both redraft and dynasty, and I couldn't agree more. Why? Because Andre Holmes' dominator rating, higher than Zay Jones. Yards per reception, higher. And his athleticism, similar. Look at the height-adjusted speed score. Andre Holmes, 110.3, 91st percentile. Zay Jones, 103.9, 79th percentile. So Andre Holmes' speed score, slightly higher because he's bigger, 6'4", 223. Zay Jones' catch radius, slightly larger at 10.28, 92nd percentile. The problem is Zay Jones at 6'2", 201 has very few impressive comps in the playerprofiler.com database. He's best comparable to Trey McBride, another athletic, small school wonderkin who stands 6'2", weighing 200 pounds. And Trey McBride has yet to fire at the NFL level, but that's not to say he can't fire at the NFL level. We just haven't seen it yet. Just like we hadn't seen it yet before Adam Thielen fired at the NFL level last season. So it's absolutely possible that Trey McBride breaks out at some point and he ends up being a friendly comp for Zay Jones. I'm not ruling it out because I'm not an arrogant, ignorant asshole. I can be arrogant though. Just the arrogant part, if you just want to trim off the other descriptors and just go with arrogant, I'll, I'll own that. I will. And maybe even asshole too. Just not ignorant. That's, the, that's where I draw the line. But Andre Holmes has been productive during his career. He was Derek Carr's go-to receiver during Derek Carr's abysmal rookie season. It was catastrophic. It was as bad as Blake Bortles' rookie season. Almost. Not as bad. Almost as bad. Nothing is that bad. So I've already picked up Andre Holmes in every dynasty league, and I believe Andre Holmes is the best last round pick in fantasy football. Because in that 2014 season with Derek Carr, he posted 693 yards on 47 receptions. 14.7 yards per reception and four touchdowns. Andre Holmes' catch rate was poor, but Derek Carr's accuracy was also poor. So what do we have? We have a small school size speed specimen comparable to Kenny Britt and Larry Fitzgerald, who experienced a mild breakout at age 26, the same age as Adam Thielen, was relegated 
after the team acquired both Michael Crabtree and Amari Cooper, understandably, and at age 29, has a second chance at NFL success with the Buffalo Bills. With only Zay Jones and Jordan Matthews looking down on him from the wide receiver target totem pole, Zay Jones is a rookie compiler from a small school who underperformed his athleticism at the college level, and Jordan Matthews is playing through a broken bone in his sternum. So I'm absolutely stashing the 6'4", 223-pound wide receiver with college dominance and size-adjusted athleticism working strongly in his favor. And you might say, well, what about Devin Funchess? Isn't he your favorite last-round pick? Well, no, because you can't get Devin Funchess and you can't acquire Cole Beasley in the last round of drafts unless you're playing on draft because that's the beauty of the draft app. Go to your app store now, search draft or go to playdraft.com and download the app. And when you sign up, use the promo code underworld to get free entry into a best ball contest with a deposit of $10 or more. And when you enter these best ball contests on draft, you can enter a two-person draft or a 12-person draft. That's the beauty of the platform, is the flexibility. Let's say you have seven friends. You and seven friends can set up a seven-person best ball draft master format league on draft. And in a seven-person league, Devin Funches could very well be your last round pick. If this is what I'm doing, I'm just finding a group of guys, it doesn't matter the size, six guys, eight guys, 11 people, could be men and women, it doesn't matter. Anyone could just go to their phone, download Draft, and create a Draftmaster best ball team right there on your phone where you're drafting players via Snake Draft during a meeting at work, and then you get to follow that team throughout the season. That's the beauty of Draft, and it's the only seasonal best ball Draftmaster platform that's also a DFS platform. So once week one and week two and week three, week four, week five, week six, week seven, week eight, week nine, week 10, week 11, week 12, week 13, week 14, week 15, week 16, week 17, roll around, you can create daily fantasy rosters using the snake draft format so that your roster is unique and there's no overlapping players with your competitors. So go get draft right now and use that promo code underworld. So Andre Holmes, he's my last round pick in all formats at the wide receiver position. At the running back position, that guy has to be Javorius Buck Allen. It has to be Buck Allen. Now, Buck Allen's best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is Ryan Matthews. But he looks like a lot of successful players. He looks like Melvin Gordon, Ryan Matthews, Marshawn Lynch. Go down the list of best comparable players on playerprofiler.com for Javorius Allen, and you just see hit after hit after hit. Successful back after successful back after successful back. And Javorius Allen has been getting snaps with the Ravens' first-team offense during preseason. In those games, he's been more effective than Terrence West. And Danny Woodhead hasn't been playing because he has a pulled hamstring. Why? Because the podfather touted him. And if the podfather touted him, he will definitely get hurt absolutely every time the podfather curse is a thing. So if Danny Woodhead can't play in Week 1, the Ravens' satellite back would be Javorius Allen. 
And we're not sure how long Terrence West can hold off Javorius Allen. It could be week two that the Ravens announced the starting running back, the primary back between the tackles, the early down guy, is now Javorius Allen. It's very easy to imagine that in your mind's eye, that scenario playing out. So we would love to see a big back with an all-purpose skill set get an opportunity. That's all we want. To see the guy with the 105.0, 76th percentile speed score. The guy with the above average college dominator, the 11.7% college target share, 81st percentile, who at one point in 2015 was a top five running back. He averaged over 16 fantasy points per game after being named the starter in week 11. Think about that. Why? How? I don't remember this. I have to go look this up. There's no way Matt Kelly's telling the truth. You're so full of shit, Fantasy Mansion. The Podfather is lying to me. No. Go to playerprofiler.com, click on the game log tab, click on 2015, scroll down, and you'll see a 35-point game from Javorius Buck Allen. In that game, he logged 12 receptions. How did Javorius Allen log 12 receptions on 13 targets? Explain this to me. We can go back to college and see that he was a fantastic receiver at USC, and then he's being fed the ball in the passing game at the professional level. We have no choice but to conclude that Javorius Allen is a fantastic route runner with great hands. That's what the numbers indicate. So what am I missing with Javorius Allen? You're missing nothing. Nothing. When you look at the metrics from that 2015 season, yards per touch, 4.7. His juke rate wasn't overly impressive, 20%, but with a 38% opportunity share, 45th in the league, he posted 45 receptions, top 12 in the NFL. So you could argue he's one of the best receiving backs in the league, one of the few satellite backs over 220 pounds that can be as effective as a Theo Riddick or a Duke Johnson in the passing game. That is impressive. That trait is much more impressive than any trait that Terrence West brings to the table or that many backs bring to the table. It's more impressive than any trait that Jordan Howard brings to the table, for example. But the buzzards love to remind me of my Jordan Howard failed take last season because I was touting Buck Allen instead of Jordan Howard in the 12th, 13th, and 14th rounds of 2016. So the buzzers love reminding me of this, that I was wrong about Jordan Howard and Javorius Allen last season. It was a massive fail recommending drafting Javorius Allen over Jordan Howard. And that's true. That's true. My Jordan Howard projection from last season was a failure. My Javorius Allen projection from last season was a failure. And the buzzards also love to remind me that I was touting Jeremy Lankford over Jordan Howard. Well, no, that's not true. I was never touting Jeremy Langford. I said it's too soon to make a definitive judgment on what Jeremy Langford is. You can't be certain whether or not he will be an NFL success. He hasn't played enough snaps. That was my argument. I did not say, here are the reasons why I think Jeremy Langford's a fantastic running back. No, of course not. And me, like Mike Clay, and every other fantasy football analyst who publishes rankings had Jeremy Langford ranked ahead of Jordan Howard last season. Yes, even Mike Clay. Because of course, you can't see this Jordan Howard season that was posted last season coming. No one could, not even Mike Clay, who was highly dismissive of Jeremy Langford. Jordan Howard went out and posted 1,314 yards 
Of course, no one saw that coming. Why was he able to do that? The Bears offensive line had a 130.5 offensive line efficiency grade on playerprofiler.com, number five in the NFL. And now in 2017, Jordan Howard, along with Jay Ajayi, are the two biggest bust candidates in the first round. Why? Because we're not sure what these players are yet. We have one good season of NFL football from which to judge these players. And that's not enough. Too much can happen in one season to cripple a player's potential or to propel them. Because the running back position is highly interdependent. It's dependent on the supporting cast and it's depending on the coaches. Last year, Javorius Allen was betrayed by his coaches. They simply refused to play him. So of course he can't accrue fantasy points if he's not getting snaps. That's not necessarily an indictment of his ability. It may be politics. We don't know. One lost season is not enough reason to dismiss a player. That's why we continue to tout Javorius Allen the following season, even after he produced very little in 2016. That's the humble, rational approach. It lacks emotion. It's clinical. We step back and we say, we know our Javorius Allen projection was way off in 2016, but that's not going to influence our projections and our analysis heading into 2017. Just like we refused to overcorrect on Jordan Howard because it was Jordan Howard's supporting cast, specifically his offensive line that propelled him last season. If Jordan Howard had to sidestep defenders in the backfield on a regular basis, how many yards do you think Jordan Howard would have ran for last year? I have no idea. He may not have reached a thousand yards without that offensive line. We don't know. We don't know how many fantasy points per game Javorius Allen would have scored had he and Jordan Howard switched places in 2016. If I were starting a franchise today, I would take Javorius Allen before selecting Jordan Howard. Because when you zoom out and you just look at the two players' respective profiles, Javorius Allen is a faster, more agile, and explosive runner who's also a fantastic pass catcher where Jordan Howard is less athletic and a non-factor in the passing game. I mean, Jordan Howard posted a 72% opportunity share last season, seventh in the league, and only 29 receptions. Remember, in 2015, Javorius Allen posted 45 receptions as a part-time player. That's why I would select Javorius Allen over Jordan Howard if I were starting a franchise today. Because a player's ability is not defined by his total fantasy points. When you dismiss Javorius Allen, you give way too much credit to Ravens coaches for making the clinical, rational decisions that you think and hope they might be making, but they very well may not be making. And if you put Jordan Howard in your top 10 most talented running backs in the NFL, you're ignoring the contribution of the Bears offensive line to his production last season. You're ignoring his Carlos Hyde level athleticism. You're ignoring Jordan Howard's lackluster college career. And we don't do that. We zoom out. That's why we're drafting Javorius Allen in the final rounds of all leagues this season. You might ask, well, what about Chris Carson? Well, Chris Carson's interesting because Chris Carson's getting first team carries for now. Why is he getting first team carries? We don't know. Is it because of ability or politics? We don't know. You don't know what conversations are going on in the head coach's office. When deciding who's getting snaps when during preseason, you don't know. Are they trying to send a message to the team? Are they trying to motivate Eddie Lacy? You have no idea what their purpose is. 
When you look at the Chris Carson profile, it's unimpressive. He has a great burst score, 127.9, 88th percentile. But that's the least predictive metric on the running back's workout metrics profile. It's burst score and bench press. Those are the least predictive of the athleticism measurements for running backs. The agility score, much more predictive, and it's 1179, 10th percentile. And his college dominator fell below 20%. Is that because he was used mostly out of the backfield? Is he a great pass catcher? No. College target share, 4.6%, 18th percentile. So he was not accumulating significant production. He was not catching a significant number of passes. He does not have the athleticism measurables we look for. So why is anyone aggressively acquiring Chris Carson right now? I don't know. Of course, I've acquired him in a handful of dynasty leagues with deep benches and taxi squads when I could acquire him at no cost or for $10 out of a $1,000 budget, acquiring him while everyone else is asleep. That's the only way I acquire Chris Carson. Everyone else, literally 11 other owners have to be asleep for me to acquire Chris Carson. His best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is Brandon Wilds. And Brandon Wilds is in a better situation. Brandon Wilds is the number three running back on the Jets. The number three running back on the Jets has a less steep depth chart to climb than the number four running back on the Seattle Seahawks. Come on, give me Brandon Wilds all day. But there's no buzz about Brandon Wilds. No one's talking about him in the media. The beat reporters haven't heard any rumors about him getting extra snaps with the first team unit. And Sean Siegel alluded to this on the last show, talking about why Marlon Mack was being drafted around after Kareem Hunt, even though he's better than Kareem Hunt, and he's in a better situation for a better team than Kareem Hunt. It's because Kareem Hunt was getting buzz, Marlon Mack wasn't. Well, a lot of players don't get buzz until they do. That's why we don't draft players based on buzz. There's no buzz metric on playerprofiler.com because buzz is oftentimes a red herring. It leads the fantasy gamer to draft a player who is inferior in a particular round. That's the danger of paying too much attention to the buzz and letting the buzz influence your decision-making in a draft room. It should not. It helps to call attention to a potential late-round flyer because that's what Chris Carson is. So sure, listen to the buzz to help you decide who to take in the last couple rounds of deep leagues. But do not allow the buzz to dissuade you from taking Javorius Allen and taking Chris Carson instead. That would be a mistake. So I'm not drafting Chris Carson aggressively, but it has nothing to do with the presence of Eddie Lacy. Thomas Rawls is there. CJ Proceis is there. I'm not aggressively acquiring Chris Carson because Chris Carson's talent profile is not impressive. And this idea that Eddie Lacy is the next Marshawn Lynch is a fallacy because the parallels are striking. On the surface, the parallels are striking. Marshawn Lynch spent four years in Buffalo before making his way to Seattle. Eddie Lacy spent four years in Green Bay before making his way to Seattle. Both players were highly touted out of college. Marshawn Lynch was a first-round pick. Eddie Lacy was a second-round pick. Both players flamed out with the team that drafted them and then experienced a career renaissance with the Seattle Seahawks. Those are the parallels. But that's where the parallels end. Because we know for certain now, we've seen enough years and enough snaps and enough reps and touches for Marshawn Lynch to know that once upon a time, he was an elite running back. He was exceptionally talented. We can't say the same for Eddie Lacy. We have not seen enough from Eddie Lacy. 
We've seen two seasons with 1,100 yards as a rookie, 4.1 yards per carry, and then as a second-year player, 4.6 yards per carry. But in no season did he eclipse 45 receptions. So generally speaking, Eddie Lacy is a between-the-tackles runner who's not been particularly efficient and was likely overdrafted by the Green Bay Packers because he went to Alabama because all Alabama players, with the possible exception of Derrick Henry, have historically been overdrafted because NFL teams assign a single scout to just cover Alabama. So NFL teams pay particular attention to Alabama and therefore they are biased in favor of Alabama players like Eddie Lacy. So Marshawn Lynch is a certain talent. Eddie Lacy, an uncertain talent. The situations are also drastically different. During his prime in Seattle, Marshawn Lynch enjoyed wide running lanes because the Seattle Seahawks had one of the league's most efficient run-blocking units featuring center Max Unger. And now the reverse is true. The Seattle Seahawks have one of the worst run-blocking units in the NFL. That's a big deal. That's the biggest deal. When you examine all of the situational forces, the difference in offensive line is the most striking. And when you look at the situations that these players were flinging, there's also a 180-degree difference. Marshawn Lynch went from a demoralizing, inept franchise, the 2010 Buffalo Bills, to an ascending franchise in the Seattle Seahawks. He went from very few running lanes to numerous running lanes. The positive change in situation is what helped unlock Marshawn Lynch. Eddie Lacy is not experiencing a positive change in situation. He's going in the wrong direction. Eddie Lacy is going from the most prolific and efficient offense outside New England and Atlanta last season to an offense that stagnated last season because the offensive line was such an abomination. And Sean Siegel talked about this on the last show, that while Eddie Lacy was technically elusive in Green Bay, you have to ask yourself, what kind of tackles was he evading? Was he evading backfield penetration? Or was he evading defensive backs five yards beyond the line of scrimmage? And when Aaron Rodgers is commanding the attention of the defense, has the defense on its heels, Eddie Lacy can spring five to ten yards into the underbelly of a defense and at 250 pounds, truck defensive backs. When a 250-pound player has all of his momentum moving forward, it's not particularly difficult to evade a defensive back's attempted tackle by either breaking the tackle or skirting around it because you have all of your momentum. The problem Eddie Lacy has is gathering momentum. When you're going to get hit in the backfield in Seattle with no momentum, it will be much more difficult to evade those tackles. Not all evaded tackles are created equal. And I believe the only running back equipped to evade the backfield penetration that will plague the Seattle Seahawks this year is C.J. Procise. Whether or not the Seattle Seahawks come to this conclusion is unknown. The Baltimore Ravens thought Terrence West gave them a better chance to win than Javorius Allen last year incorrectly. The Seattle Seahawks may believe that Eddie Lacy and Thomas Rawls and Chris Carson give their team a better chance to win on any given down and distance than C.J. Procise, and they would be wrong. Coaches are wrong every Sunday, and anyone that believes that Eddie Lacy is the second coming of Marshawn Lynch in Seattle is also wrong.
But I'm not drafting CJ Procise. I can't draft him for a couple reasons. Number one, his role is ambiguous, and the coaches are giving us no indication that they plan to play him significant snaps to give him a significant opportunity share. So CJ Procise would be a player I would love to acquire at the end of a draft, but not in the middle of a draft. And he's also injured. I avoid drafting players who are injured in preseason. Why? Because why not? You're not forced to draft injured players. Every time you draft a player who is injured, you have to rationalize away the injury. Hope for the best. There's no need to do that. Just don't draft them. That's why I'm not drafting Odell Beckham Jr. I'll be drafting AJ Green and let someone else deal with the aggravation of owning Odell Beckham Jr. Because it looks like we're going to be having a conversation a year from now, rationalizing away Odell Beckham Jr.'s missed expectations in 2017. And the reason will be, oh, well, he was playing hurt. You can't diminish Odell Beckham Jr.'s ability based on his 2017 performance because he was playing hurt last season. That will be the narrative in 2018. So why are you drafting a player where that narrative has already been written the following year? Every player in that Giants receiving core is hurt. Sprained ankles for Sterling Shepard and Odell Beckham, a sprained shoulder for Brandon Marshall. The only healthy New York Giant wide receiver, Roger Lewis. You don't need to draft Roger Lewis and redraft. You can monitor him and pick him up if he commands a significant target share in week one. I will be if that happens. But I'm getting out ahead of it in Dynasty and stashing him on the taxi squad because 33.8% dominator rating with a 16.6 78th percentile college yards per reception. He looks like Willie Sneed and Robert Woods, other productive wide receivers that took a couple years before they made fantasy-relevant contributions at the NFL level. Roger Lewis's talent profile is on par with Sterling Shepard's, so that's a player I'm stashing. But I could be wrong, just like I was wrong about Jordan Howard last year, and that's okay, because there is no infallible fantasy analyst. Well, let me clarify. There is no infallible fantasy analyst that gives concrete opinions. Because it's been pointed out to me that Mike Clay predicted Jeremy Langford's downfall last year. Yeah, I know. But the funny thing about Mike Clay's timeline is it's largely devoid of conviction. The people that love this show love the conviction. It's also the reason why people don't like this show. They think I have too much conviction. Who are these people that listen to a show and think, yeah, that guy just has too much conviction. We need more wishy-washy takes. But that's what makes this show different. The utter lack of wishy-washy takes because when you go to Twitter and you look up any given fantasy analyst, in this case, Mike Clay, what you get are wishy-washy takes. You can't pin them down to an incorrect opinion, to a failed projection, because there is no concrete analysis. Their positions are not stated clearly. They're cloaked in caveats. They're couched. Marquez Wilson was recently released from the New York Jets. The New York Jets released Marcus Wilson on August 25th. The least talented receiving core in the league decided they didn't need Marcus Wilson. And so at age 25, with 7th round draft capital, Marcus Wilson is a streak-free agent, having already been cut by the team with by far and away the least talent at the wide receiver position. Marcus Wilson's career is definitively over. Certain. 100% over. No exceptions. No possibility of a Tim Hightower comeback. He can never be Adam Thielen. 
This we know with definitive certainty. So very few things we can state with definitive certainty. This is the one thing we can state with definitive certainty. And yet, Mike Clay cannot. He writes on Twitter, might be it for Wilson. Might be it, Mike. Might be it. It might be it. You can't even state a definitive opinion about Marcus Wilson after he's cut from the Jets? You still have to couch it just in case someone tries to say you were wrong? It's okay if you're wrong. It's fantasy football for Christ's sake. I'm proudly wrong when I'm wrong because being wrong indicates that I publicly stated a crystal clear opinion of a player and I did it fearlessly. I'm not cloaking every position with ifs and mites. Should call it a Mike Clay might. Might be it for Wilson. You think? I mean, what's the value of that tweet? It's not helpful. And this isn't a Mike Clay problem. He just exemplifies this disease that plagues the fantasy football industry. So many that have built a career on something as silly as fantasy football, a game that's a proxy for yet another game, are surprisingly earnest and fearful with their public statements. It is a disease that has no cure. Fantasy football fear. The fearful analysis. If there's one thing that we do on this show, it's deliver information fearlessly. And we're the only ones. Because you could say, oh, well, Christopher Harris does an independent podcast. He's beholden to no one. He gives fearless opinions, but that's not true. Just because you're pretentious does not mean you're fearless. But Christopher Harris is not afraid to call me names on his show and on social media. Because after I posted a tweet where I implied that drafting Corey Davis before Eric Decker and Rashard Matthews was a head-scratcher, Christopher Harris was indignant. He called me an idiot. He called me a knucklehead. And he referred to playerprofiler.com as whatever ridiculous crap he peddles. That knucklehead. He. The pronoun. Never using my name. Not once on his show. Why is that? Because he's scared. Why is he scared? Because he's afraid if he calls me out by name that he will lose traffic and listeners to the podfather. That's when you see the Weasley boorish name calling. It's the behavior of someone who is tilting and afraid. If you are going to criticize me or criticize this show, don't be a coward. Call me by name. Say my name. Say it. Because on the flip side, I've never called Christopher Harris a derogatory name. I always call him by his full name, Christopher Harris, because I'm secure in my position at the top of the food chain. I am the apex predator in this business. I drink your milkshake, not vice versa. That's why our listenership climbs with every single show. It has for years. Why? Because I am unafraid and self-assured. I'm not posing as a self-assured person. I started playerprofiler.com so I would never have to bend the knee to anyone. You work for ESPN? I don't care. You work for Fantasy Pros? I don't care. You work for DraftKings or FanDuel? I don't care. You work for the NFL? I don't care fucking care. 
I am going to speak my mind and share what I believe to be true at all times with this audience. If I am thinking it, if I am feeling it, I will express it. But then I hear that Christopher Harris is like me because we have listeners that listen to both shows. Yeah, he's like me because he doesn't take himself seriously. He likes to have fun on his show. Likes to have fun and goof around. Except when I had him on my show, he was not fun. He did not goof around. In fact, at one point I had to say, down boy, because he called me disingenuous in a serious tone. On my show, he took himself very seriously. I couldn't even have fun with him in the outtakes, and I have fun with everyone in the outtakes. Matt, I'd love to participate in your shenanigans off the air, but I take this very seriously. This is my profession. He was not fun to talk to. In fact, I can't think of a show in which I had less fun than when Christopher Harris came on this show and spoke words for over an hour while saying exactly nothing. But he does do one of the two key pillars of this show. So the Christopher Harris podcast, Harris Football, go subscribe to it on iTunes because I'm not afraid of him. His show does one important thing a lot of shows do not do. It's one of the key components of this show. We point out the inconsistencies and baseless narratives weaved by mainstream sports media. That's one pillar, but he's missing the second pillar, the more difficult pillar, which is to replace the vapid analysis with truly insightful evidence-based analysis of football. Christopher Harris does not do that. He just replaces existing narratives with his own well-worn narratives and his feelings-based analysis. And that's ultimately why his listeners make the move to my show and ultimately outgrow his show as they evolve as football fans and fantasy gamers. It doesn't work the other way around. There's not someone who was a longtime listener of this show and then said, hey, you know what? I'm going to unsubscribe from Roto Underworld Radio and I'm going to switch over to Harris Football. That's my new go-to podcast. Never. Once you make the move to my show, and you listen to me debunk mainstream analysis and replace it with something quantitatively thought-provoking, you would never go back to the Christopher Harris podcast because that approach is obsolete. Once you take the red pill, you can never go back and eat the faux steak dinner that Christopher Harris claims to serve ever again. And Christopher Harris knows this. That's why my one innocuous tweet bothered him so much. Don't you see? Deep down, he knows. He knows. And that's why he acted out. That's why he lashed out. That's why he's so defensive over nothing. All the while refusing to utter my name. It's Matt Kelly. It's Fantasy Mansion. I'm the motherfucking podfather, Chris. Say my name. And stop mischaracterizing and misquoting my positions on your show. And if you ever refer to any of my analysis again, say my name. No more veiled references, Christopher. Either say my name, Matt Kelly, The Podfather, Fantasy Mansion, PlayerProfiler.com. Say it!